The initial public offering of luxury car manufacturer Porsche last fall was a bright spot in an otherwise difficult equity market. So how has the automaker navigated the macro challenges and what are the implications for the sector more broadly? We have still a strong situation in North America with a strong economic situation. We are faced with inflation in Europe, but especially in our segment and the luxury segment, our customers are not so affected like customers in the volume segment or in the premium segment. Then I expect a strong comeback in China in the second half of the year. I'm Alison Nathan, and this is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. In this special episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, I'm sitting down with Oliver Bluma, the CEO of Porsche and its parent company, VW, and Goldman Sachs' Christoph Stenger, who chairs the European Equity Capital Markets team and helped take the company public. The IPO was the largest ever by market cap in Europe and the second largest IPO in German history. Today, Porsche is the most valuable automotive company in Europe. We'll go behind the scenes to look at what it was like to take the company public, the impact on Porsche's future growth and development as a company, as well as some of the broader trends in the automotive industry. Oliver, Christoph, welcome to the program. Yeah, hello, and thanks for having us. Great to be here. Oliver, let me just start by saying congratulations on the public debut of Porsche and the stock's strong performance since its initial listing. And when you think back to that journey of going public, what were some of the challenges that you faced? Yeah, challenges was to build the equity story for Porsche based on a very consistent strategy of our business and then wins the investors of our business case. And we did nine roadshows in six different countries. We organized together with our banking partners 140 meetings, met over 1,200 investors and answered over 3,500 questions. We had a fantastic and very successful capital markets day where we were able to show the wide product range of exciting race cars to the investors show for what the Porsche brand stands for. And that was a part of the journey for this successful IPO. And Christoph, from your vantage point, what were some of the biggest issues you had to deal with in putting the deal together, particularly since it was a volatile time in the market and there was a lack of IPO offerings in general at the time? So I remember two issues very distinctly. So the first one was, what is this company actually worth? Because you've got such a spectrum on valuations and it's a new segment. It's luxury and luxury didn't exist before. So we found that spot and we found it by comparing ourselves to LVMH and things like that. The second thing, which I thought was really difficult, was... I knew that the management team would say to us in September of last year, can we do this or not? And we had to make decisions already in June. And these decisions were complicated decisions. Do you start with investor engagement? Do you hold a capital markets day? Do you actually do? So we had to turn the whole thing on its head, basically, and create demand way ahead of time. And Christoph, was there anything special about the way the Porsche IPO was organized in terms of investor focus, given the specific fan base? So one thing I would say, if you're in a highly volatile environment and you're operating in a very public kind of setting, there is no way of stepping back. So once you go, you have to go. 
But you're not making these decisions on a minute-by-minute -minute basis, but on a three to six months basis. So if you had asked anyone out there right after the Ukraine war to make a prediction for six months, most people would have told you that's not possible. And we knew that. And therefore, what we did is we said, we need to do something about this IPO that makes it solid and special. And the way we did it is we went to very strong cornerstones that backed the IPO with billions and billions of dollars throughout the period. And then alongside that, we put the broader market, the broader investor group, and we did all of that before we actually launched the deal formally. So by the time this went public, the term for it is the ITF, the intention to float, we knew that we were done. So the volatility that some people are really afraid of during the book building period where it goes up and down and if the market's bad, suddenly you are not getting your deal done. We didn't have that issue. And it made it a little less stressful in terms of going through the roadshow because you knew every meeting mattered, but you already had a very well-educated audience that had already given somewhat of a note to the deal. So it made it special. It made it successful. And I remember on the first day of trading, actually, the automotive index was down, I think, three or four or five percent, a really complicated day. But the strength of this book allowed you to sail through it and make it a really successful exercise since. And it is now the most valuable automotive company in Europe by market cap. And what was it about Porsche and the company that enabled you to lock down those cornerstone investors in the way that you did? The draw of the brand was super strong and it required that because I think very few other things would have worked in that size in that market if it hadn't been Porsche. And Oliver, you mentioned the hundreds of meetings you did with investors throughout this process. There are so many fans of the Porsche brand in this world. Are there any memorable moments during some of those investor meetings you can share with us? Yeah, that was so special for us. And at the beginning of the process, I didn't expect such a strong commitment, such a strong link to our brand. We were shown, I don't know, over thousand of photos of Porsches with a special history. And we were shown full garages of Porsches with very personal memories. And so I think that was one important part of the story that we have such a big fan base, especially in between the investors. And so it helped us, besides of the excitement to our brand and our products, to convince about our equity story, our strategy and our future plans. So it all does seem to come back to the strength of the Porsche brand, Oliver. What does the brand mean to you? We have a strong heritage and now we are entering the 75th anniversary this year. We were able to develop our brand, sticking to our roots, while we combine it with pioneering spirit and innovation. It's a kind of passion and a sense of family that makes Porsche so, so special. And only with this spirit, with this fantastic product, we were able to build this special Porsche community all over the world. We have round about 3 million registered customers. We have Porsche clubs all over the world. When the Porsche clubs come together, talking about their Porsche history and the excitement about the brand. 
And so where do you want to take Porsche from here? What's your long-term ambition for the brand and the company? We keep on designing and developing exciting sports cars. For us, it's all about dreams. We are driven by dreams. That's one aspect. Talking about our financial perspective, we have a long-term goal to achieve a return on sales of over 20%. And therefore, we built a Road to 20 program where we are tapping in all the value chain of our business. And I think we have a very positive prepared base to go for it. And the whole team now is passionate to get it. And what's the read across of Porsche's success to VW? Yeah, we are positioned in the luxury segment and being able to get a price level like other luxury niche manufacturers. But the big advantage we do have comparing to others in the niche segment is that we are benefiting from our scale effects in between our company, being able to sell over 300,000 cars and also benefiting from scale effects in the VW group when you think on purchasing volume, when you think about using modules for our cars, which are not differentiating and using plants of the Volkswagen group. All these are big advantages for our scale effects. Let's turn to some of the macro challenges that have been affecting automakers globally. Supply chain delays have been in focus for literally three years now. What are you observing in terms of automotive supply chains and semiconductors for 2023? Are the delays largely behind us at this point or are supply chains still recovering? First of all, one part of the success of Porsche is a robust business model. And we have shown it in the Corona year. We have shown it in the last years with supply chain issues. We have shown a very strong performance in the year when the Ukraine war break out. And for us, the break-even situation is very important, which is very positive for Porsche. The volume flexibility around the world, which makes us flexible against a geopolitical crisis. And coming back to the supply chain issues, for us, it was very important to get more transparency in the whole value chain, to organize the right partnerships and to agree um, clear commitments for supply semiconductors. And so we were able also together with our colleagues in Volkswagen Group to build a more stable situation, which brings us in a better position in 2023. Talking about the different regions of the world, it's different. We have still a strong situation in North America with a strong economic situation. We are faced with inflation in Europe, but especially in our segment and the luxury segment, our customers are not so affected like customers in the volume segment or in the premium segment. Then I expect a strong comeback in China in the second half of the year. It's a post-corona situation we have seen already in Europe or in North America. And we see very strong developing markets in Southeast Asia or in the Middle East. Christoph, is Porsche's experience similar to what you're observing across the rest of the automotive industries in dealing with these macro headwinds and especially the sharp rise in interest rates that we've observed? How's it affecting the broader automotive sector and consumer spending? 
So I think I say a few things. Things like interest rates, GDP growth rates are clearly normally impacting consumer behavior. This period may be slightly different because we're still coming out of the COVID period. We're still coming out of shortages. So production volumes aren't quite at the peak levels yet. That's, I would say, for the general automotive. And Oliver, you mentioned China and its growth rebound and implications for your business. China is also pursuing decarbonization efforts, restricting combustion engines in some major cities. How is that affecting your strategy there? I had the opportunity to travel to China four weeks ago for a week, and I was very impressed of the speed, how technology is moving there. And I'm traveling to China since 25 years in different business fields, and I've never seen such a strong progress during the last years. And when it comes to electrification, the development is quite faster than the Chinese expected a couple of years ago. Last year, over 25% of the new car deliveries were already pure electric cars. And the expectation is that in 25 or 26, we will come to the tipping point when over 50% of all new cars will be electric cars. Porsche is positioned very special in the Chinese market, in the luxury segment, so you can't compare the Porsche positioning with others. But Porsche is very well prepared to the electrification. On the one hand side, we will bring, after the very successful Taycan in the Chinese market, next year a fully electric Macan, followed by a electric 718, a electric Cayenne, and a luxurious SUV in a cadence. And so we will have in few years a full product portfolio focused on electromobility, while on the other side, we are prepared also for hybridization, which is also one part of the electrification in China. We say New Cayenne with a hybrid and a range of over 80 kilometers electric driven and followed by a Panamera. And so the product portfolio fits perfectly to the needs of our Chinese customers and matches perfectly to the strong electrification in China. And more broadly, a stat that stands out to me is that you have committed to 80% of electric vehicles in terms of deliveries by 2030. That's pretty impressive. How will that shift globally towards electrification impact your price points and your profitability? Yeah, first of all, our product strategy is very flexible. We have in all our segments a offer of combustion engines, hybrids, and full electrification. We have a strong ramp-up curve towards electrification with over 80% electric cars already in 2030, which is linked to our product cycle plans. And we are well underway and we are very convinced to achieve at the end this target. The mix is important because the different regions of the world are moving with a different speed towards a transformation, which will last at least 10 years. And therefore, this flexibility gives us stability. Talking about the profit margins, we expect with the upcoming new electric models, starting with the electric Macan 718, then Cayenne and the luxury SUV, that we will get to the tipping point where the profit margin of the electric cars at Porsche will be higher than the combustion engine cars. Of course, if we think about your product line the 911 is one of the most iconic cars in history, if not one of the most iconic products ever. 
many of our listeners might not know that the company's stock ticker is listed as P911 on the Frankfurt Stock Exchange in Germany, and its overall share count is 911 million shares, both obviously nods to the company's 911 model. So what's the future of the 911? We were able, developing during the last years, a very focused product strategy for the 911 with very sporty models like the GT model, GT3 RS or the Touring. Then we built the Heritage line with the 50s model, the 60s models and the Sports Classic and maybe a 70s and 80s model to come. And then we published at the end of last year the off-road 911s with a 911 Dakar. And so we were able to drive also the profit margins to a higher positioning of the 911. Talking about the future of the 911, we will add a hybrid version, a very sporty one, not a plug-in hybrid, to combine the best of two worlds and carrying over our experience with hybrid engines from motorsports to the road with a very strong electric punch and using cylinder boxer motor. And I'm testing this car and I'm very excited. And so, Oliver, you mentioned that 2023 is an important anniversary year for Porsche. It marks Porsche's 75th year as a sports car manufacturer, as you said, and it's the 60th year of the 911. How are you celebrating this year? Yeah, it's a very special year. We kicked off this year with a exhibition in Berlin of the history of Porsche, which you can visit during the next months up to autumn in Berlin. But this was only the starting point during the year. We have a lot of events. We're celebrating on the 8th of June in Sofenhausen. Then we have a Porsche Fans Day on the 10th of June in Hockenheim. And we have 100 years anniversary of Le Mans where we will take part and racing for the overall victory in Le Mans also in June. And beside of all these events, we will come with a lot of product surprises for our fans and customers. And Oliver, last question for you. What is your all-time favorite model? I own a 911R and I'm so passionate and excited to drive this car with a manual gear shift and this poor driving fun, what presents the 911R. So that's my favorite car. Oliver, Christoph, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, recorded on Wednesday, March 29th, 2023. If you enjoyed this show, we hope you follow on your platform of choice and tune in next week for another episode. Make sure to share and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you'd like to learn more, visit GS.com and sign up for Briefings, a weekly newsletter from Goldman Sachs about trends shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. 
In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.